From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show on this Monday morning. Hope you are having a great start to your week. Now, if you own a South African passport, you will know that it allows you to go to all sorts of interesting countries that perhaps you'd never thought of, like North Korea and uh, Venezuela and Libya and Cuba, all visa-free. And perhaps you haven't thought about going to these places before. I can't understand why. Uh, but we have someone on the show today who actually has. And not only did he think about it, he's actually gone. His name is Dan Brockman. He's actually a former Cape Tonian, amongst other things. And he has a bit of a passion for traveling to the unusual and the unknown. And he's just come back from Afghanistan and Pakistan. So I thought, let's get him on the show and chat to him about what it is like to go to places where nobody else wants to go. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Chai FM. Thanks for having me, Benji. Let's start off with that. What is wrong with the south of France or, you know... A nice trip to London, something like that. Why Why all these strange places? First of all, where have you been that's so unusual? Where have I been that's unusual? Um, so I really began my unusual travel journeys when I became a South African citizen uh, because I got that passport. And then I said, okay, where can I go now that I couldn't go before? And the very first you, answer you're, was You're American. Right? I'm originally from the U.S., currently living in Canada. Um, but the very first place I realized I could suddenly go as a South African that I couldn't as an American is North Korea. So I did that in 2018, beginning of 2019. And then the next one was Iran. And then I kind of just went down a rabbit hole and thought of all the countries that scare me and then decided to go visit them. And I'm continuing to do that. But I do visit normal places. I am going to Lisbon this summer. Okay, very good. Well, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that 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 is also a, an opportunity for you to go uh, somewhere normal. So, okay, so North Korea and Iran, uh, and now you've decided to go to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And Afghanistan, of course, a very interesting choice because it would have been abnormal a couple of years ago, but now it's extremely abnormal place to go, uh, recently taken over by the Taliban, which ran the place uh, about 20 years ago and then sort of retook over once uh, NATO and the Americans pulled out. So first of all, tell us, what is it like to go to Afghanistan? Because I imagine there's no direct flight. No. So actually, logistically, it's quite complicated to get there. Um, you can't really apply for a visa to Afghanistan from most um, Afghan embassies and consulates around the world. So we actually had to start our trip in Pakistan. Um, so we flew into Islamabad, I did, and then we actually drove to Peshawar, which is a city kind of near the Afghan border. And we actually had to go to the Afghan consulate and get our visas there. We got our visas and then rushed straight to the airport and took a one-hour flight to Kabul. Okay, so that's the, the logistics of, of getting there. I'm sure that once you were there, things that maybe were there before had started to change, like signs of Taliban rule uh, coming back. What, what were some of the things you could see that obviously this is clearly now a different administration for what maybe was before? 
Well, I mean, of course, the first thing I saw was the new flag, which is just a white flag that says uh, God is one, Allah is one. But I would say the biggest sign that things have changed is that women have just been erased from the society. I've, I don't know if you've seen the TV show, The Handmaid's Tale, mm -hmm. um, but it, this is like The Handmaid's Tale in real life. So up until the Taliban retook power in 2021, Afghanistan had a constitution. Women were members of parliament. They were diplomats. They, you know, they had normal jobs like in any other Western country. And as soon as the Taliban took over, they essentially retrenched all women from their jobs. Uh, and they also said that uh, women couldn't and girls couldn't study anymore. So now in Afghanistan, girls can only study until grade six. After grade six, they kind of just have to sit at home and wait to be married off and, at, you know, at the age of 16 or 18. And they could be married off as a, as a first wife or a third wife. But, but really, you know, walking down the street, you just do not see women. If you only see men, uh, on the odd occasion that you do see a woman, they are pressurized essentially to cover their faces. Um, so, um, men sort of live normal lives. They go to restaurants. They do totally normal things. Women are not to be seen. And if they are seen, they're not allowed into most public places. Sure. Yeah. And that was, I suppose, one of the things that was always a concern in Afghanistan, uh, particularly under the Taliban. Now, let's just talk more about the logistics of it for a moment, because you don't, uh, particularly not with your North Korea trip, but in general, you don't like waltz into one of these places and go and hang out at the Ritz, right? Uh, you actually go as a bit of a tour and there's a, a company that, that uh, allows you to do it. So how does that work? So Afghanistan's definitely a country you cannot do on your own. Um, I, I went with an adventure tour company that I've gone to other countries like Iran and North Korea too. It's called Young Pioneer Tours. Um, there are some other tour companies that go to Afghanistan. This was their first trip back to the country since the Taliban took over. So they actually called it a, a research trip. They hand-selected six tourists to, to take back to Afghanistan and see what it was going to be like. So we didn't know how smooth the trip was going to be. Among the six of us, um, about half of us were based in the UAE, and then two of us were based in North America, one in the UK, um, and we were all male. I cannot imagine what we would have done if we had even a single female in that group. The country is just not equipped right now for women to participate in society. I mean, even just going into a museum, for example, um, you know, you have to get patted down. They don't have women working at the museums to pat other women down. Most, uh, there was an Indian, a female Indian tourist at our hotel, and she told me that she had to eat supper at the hotel every night because she's not allowed into restaurants as a woman. So as a male, it was relatively easy to visit the country. I cannot imagine what it's like for female tourists. I know that next month the tour company is running an all-female trip, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how that plays out. And just on the passport thing for, for one second, because once you gain citizen, citizenship of, in South Africa, does the passport then say, I don't know, that you're from Cape Town or from, it does still like reference your United States background? Uh, so, and, and is that a problem then when, when, when officials are looking at a South African passport, but seeing that maybe you have this different uh, background? Not in this case. Um, Afghanistan doesn't have a prohibition uh, on other nationalities visiting except for Israel. So, I mean, we had an American with an American passport in my group. So, so in Afghanistan, it wasn't an issue. It was an issue, however, when I was going to go to Syria. 
Um, so I was going to go to Syria on my South African passport. Syria uh, banned Americans from visiting to the extent that if your place of birth is listed as the U.S., they deny you a visa. So myself and two other American participants all had our visas rejected simply because of our place of birth on our foreign passports. And then I wasn't able to go to Syria. Ah, okay. So it turns out the green number does you can get you everywhere. But all right. So that's very interesting. Just to... Except Syria if you were born in the U.S. No, sorry, if you're born in the U.S., just a note to all listeners. So that that's one of the, 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 the politics of the country. But Afghanistan itself is actually, you know, it does have quite a vibrant and long culture. It was part of the Silk Road. Um, and, and I imagine that some of that has survived uh, the, the, the rule of the Taliban. So, so tell us a little bit about what life is like outside of the kind of Islamist political element. Well, I mean, what's interesting about Afghanistan is it was actually a Buddhist country before it became an Islamic country. So I don't know if you remember in 2001, the big Buddha statues in Bamiyan that the Taliban blew up. We actually went to Bamiyan and saw, I guess, the remains of where those statues were. There's really, really interesting Buddhist history in the country. I would say, though, that what's most fascinating about Afghanistan is how diverse it is. Because it was on the Silk Road, it is a multi-ethnic, multilingual country. Um, so Pashtuns are the majority. But, you know, we saw a sizable Uzbek population, Tajik. And what's even interesting is because of all of that intermixing, I saw many blonde children in Afghanistan. Uh, and they're actually from the Hazara tribe. So they, many of them have blonde hair, but in terms of their features, they look more East Asian. So, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. We went to a city that Genghis Khan completely destroyed. In this city, they killed his grandson during a war. And so he ordered that the entire city be slaughtered. And uh, they call it now the City of Screams. Um, that's how they remember the, you know, that was sort of the last thing that happened there before it was destroyed. They massacred the entire city. So very, very interesting history. Um, something that's noteworthy, actually, at both for Pakistan and Afghanistan is um, there are actually Magendavids um, everywhere, um, which I thought was very unusual. And I asked, why are there Magendavids on all of these buildings? And they said that basically because it was on the Silk Road, traders used to go to Uzbekistan, to Bukhara, where there was a very large Jewish population. And they would see these stars of David on these Jewish traders' homes. And they thought they were beautiful. So they brought that back to this region. And it's actually just decorative now. Um, but it's not unusual to see Magendavids in jewelry or on buildings. Sure, that's really, really interesting. And what about uh, the sort of natural uh, elements of the country? It's very mountainous, uh, mountainous. I imagine that there's lakes and, and, and that sort of thing as well as part, part of the so-called tourist thing that you can do there. Yeah, so it is, it's a very mountainous country, uh, which is actually, I think, why uh, the Soviets, for example, really struggled to take hold of it. It's a very, very difficult terrain. We went to the only national park in Afghanistan. It was only established a few years ago. Um, but again, um, you know, this is a country where music is banned. So you go to a national park and people, you know, just a few years ago, people would go on boats and they would dance and there'd be mixing. Now no music is allowed. No drinking is allowed. Um, if you steal, they chop, you know, they, it's Sharia law. They chop off your hand. For adultery, they stone you. Um, so, you know, I, I spoke to so many young people there and they kept on telling me that just the Taliban has banned fun. 
Their life is not fun anymore. Um, people are economically immiserated because when the Taliban took over, all the international communities stopped doing trade with Afghanistan. I, I was having ice cream one evening in Mazari Sharif, and I spoke to this ethnic Uzbek guy sitting next to me. He told me that he's a pharmacist. And that when the Taliban came to power, a woman called him and asked him to come to her home to give her an injection. She wasn't well. They caught him giving her an injection, and he was thrown in prison for one year. Now he's unemployed and can't get a job. I spoke to another young woman who, uh, you know, started high school just like a normal girl would. And then when the Taliban came to power, she couldn't go to school anymore. So now she's studying English online. She's one of the very few who have internet at home. And her dream is to become, is to move to Dubai and become a trader. So just hearing how difficult it is for young people, hearing them tell me that they have no future there and that their only prospect in life is to leave, uh, was very, very tragic. Um, but I tried to speak to as many local people as I could, despite the fact that most didn't speak English well. That was going to be my next question. Like, uh, what, given it's multi-ethnic and multi-language, but like, how do you communicate in in, uh, in when you do these sorts of things? So, I mean, you do find, especially younger people, tend to speak English a little better. Um, a lot of it is hand gestures, smiling. Um, you know, I had some interesting experiences. So, I mean, I met the Taliban when I was there. We went to a government office. It was sort of like their tourism office in Mazari Sharif. And they actually said, can we interview, you know, two of the people in the group? And I put up my hand and said, of course, you can interview me. Um, and I was interviewed with the, by the Taliban. They asked me, you know, what do you think of our country? The thing is, is that when you're in these very, um, authoritarian countries, you can't really tell them what you think. When I was in North Korea, I couldn't really tell them what I think. So, you know, you kind of just have to keep a poker face, um, compliment their country. But then as soon as I left Afghanistan's border, I made a commitment that I would do whatever I can to educate people on what's happening there, especially to women. Uh, it's pretty much unheard of that with a stroke of a pen, over 20 million women were disenfranchised. I wouldn't even say they're second class citizens. I'd say they're third or fourth class citizens. Hmm. And, and talking about that, I mean, did you personally ever feel un, unsafe? I mean, you're obviously you're Jewish, uh, you're, you're American, you, you know, you, you, they don't know what your political views are or, or anything else. But in those countries, all of these things is a, <laughs> a potentially an issue. Uh, was that ever something, even, even, I mean, the, the tour company that you operate with, they've had people who, who got left behind at some point. So it, it is a risk. Yes, it's always a risk. Um, I, you know, there, there are a few things that I do to mitigate risk. So, I mean, one thing is I go on a South African passport because most of these authoritarian countries either have good relations with South Africa or they have no issue with South Africa. So I think already by going as a neutral nationality or a friendly nationality, you're less likely to be a target. Um, being, you, that's exactly why it's important to be very respectful. So you were referring to Otto Warmbier. He was a Jewish, a young Jewish guy who went with this tour company to North Korea. He took down a poster and was detained, arrested, and then wound up coming back to the U.S. in a coma and died. 
Um, so it's it's incredibly important to respect all the local rules. We were told you're not allowed to take pictures of Taliban. You're not allowed to even go speak to women, take photos of women. So I tried to follow the rules as best I could. I felt safe in the country. I mean, that's the one thing is that the, Afghanistan was a very dangerous country prior to the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban were the people perpetuating the danger. Now they're in power. So um, you have, you know, you have checkpoints every few minutes, constantly going through metal detectors to get into my hotel. I had to I, I go through a metal detector, put my bag in, a, in an x-ray scanner like you would at the airport. Uh, it, it was constantly like going through airport security to get anywhere. So I felt physically safe also because I knew that the perpetrators are in government now. So they're not going to like bomb their own country. They also want recognition by the international community. So they really want to show a good time to international tourists so that we'll go home and tell people good things about Afghanistan. Um, so I felt safe. The only time I didn't feel safe was probably we took a 14-hour drive from Kabul up north to Mazar-e-Sharif. And I mean, the roads are just, I mean, if you think, I mean, they make Joburg roads look like Swiss, like the Autobahn in Germany. Like, there, I mean, no lines delineating which lane you're in. Um, you know, cars driving that are not roadworthy, potholes galore. Uh, so I felt a little bit unsafe. We went in the we went in a, in the, it's actually deemed the most dangerous tunnel in the world. It was built by the Soviets. And just three months ago, a truck caught on fire and a hundred people died. Like avalanches happen and cars get stuck in there and people, you know, hundreds of people die. We, we got through it fine, but uh, the roads were what made me feel a little unsafe. Otherwise I felt very safe. I've, it's very rare during my travels that I feel unsafe. And that's the benefit of going with an organized tour. It's not like I was in Afghanistan hitchhiking by myself. When you go with an organized tour, they make sure that, you know, you're only going to safe places, that the logistics make sense. So I was in good hands. We're going to Dan Brotman today. He is someone who enjoys traveling to, uh, let's call them unusual places. And we're just hearing from him what that is like at his recent trip to Afghanistan and Pakistan. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9 by FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 FM. I'm Benji Shulman talking to Dan Brotman today about his trip to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Let's talk about Pakistan. We haven't spoken about that yet, Dan. You went to some very interesting places, including uh, some of the Islamic uh, heritage. Uh, you don't always think, obviously, Pakistan is a Muslim country, but all the big mosques in the world, you think about Dubai or Saudi Arabia, but actually Pakistan had some had some as well. Yes. So we actually went to the Faisal Mosque, which was up until I believe it was the early 90s, the largest mosque in the world. It was a gift from Saudi Arabia's king, King Faisal, to Pakistan. What's interesting, actually, it's a funny story. Um, So we were walking in a bazaar in Islamabad and um, I looked inside an antique shop. This is totally by chance. And I thought I saw Hebrew and I was like, that can't be. I thought I was seeing a mirage. And I looked closer and it was a tile um, that said uh, the name of a Hebrew boy in Hebrew letters. And I was like, what? I was like, what is that? What is that? They thought it was Islamic. They had no, no exposure to Judaism or to Jewish people. They thought that this thing in Hebrew was some Islamic tile. Um, it turns out that it was from the Jewish community of Herat. Herat was the center of Jewish life in Afghanistan. So when the Taliban took over and, you know, subsequent wars, a lot of the best artifacts from Afghanistan were actually smuggled out of the country and sold in Pakistan. So clearly this was taken out of Herat 
it's being sold in some antique shop in, in, in Islamabad. And I said, um, you know, how much do you want for it? And they're like, ah, some Islamic tell $50. (laughs) Um, and so I bought it. And so for the first time in many decades, it's once again in a Jewish home. I had another experience, very similar experience when I was in Kabul. It was a few minutes, a few hours before we left the country. We were walking down Chicken Street, which is like a popular street for tourists. I guess in the 1970s, the hippies liked to hang out there. And I looked, I just looked inside a window and I saw a menorah on a necklace. And I was like, what? Um, It was almost like the emblem of, you know, the state of Israel. Mm. So I went inside and again, I'm like, what is this? And they're like, I think it's Islamic. We're not sure. And so I said, I only have $6 on me. That's like the last cash I have. We're going to the airport. Can I just buy it for $6? They're like, sure, no value to us. And I bought this and it's in pristine condition. Uh, clearly belonged to a member of the Jewish community of Afghanistan. No idea how it got into an antique shop. And I feel like if I had just taken more time to look at antique shops in Afghanistan, I would have found more Jewish artifacts. One of the most interesting experiences I had was actually finding the the synagogue in Kabul. So it's the a, last it's a famous synagogue because there were like two people left or something, and then they would fight over the shul. That's the the, the legend. Yes. So there were two, there were two Jews who were cousins, I believe, and they lived, they both, um, lived in the shul, but they weren't on speaking terms. They didn't get on. So, um, the, one of them left, I think, or I think one of them passed away, but the, 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 the other one who they thought was the last Jew in Afghanistan actually left the country in 2021 when the Taliban took over and everyone said, okay, there are no Jews left in Afghanistan. This guy left. Turns out there was one family that they didn't know about, the Moradi family, who actually moved to Toronto, I think also in 2021 or 2022. So I really wanted to find the synagogue in Kabul. Um, I didn't even know if I'd be able to get in, but I was like, okay, there are no Jews left in the country. I want to see the show. So through a friend, I actually got in touch with this family in Toronto that had just moved here from Afghanistan. And they explained to me via SMS how to find the shul. Um, So we drove uh, to the street and it took a few minutes to find it. And I found the shul. There was a gate with Magenda Vids on it. And I went to the shopkeeper next door and I said, can you, you know, do you have keys? Can you please let me in? And he told me that up until 2021, Jewish visitors were allowed into the shul, but the Taliban has now forbade anyone, including Jews, from entering the synagogue. They've essentially closed all houses of worship in the country that are not Muslim. So uh, there was no way for me to get inside of the synagogue, which was a big disappointment, but I was happy that I found it, and at least that I saw the gate with the Magen Davids. Now, in, in Pakistan, it's... You get the impression of a much more populous place than, than Afghanistan, like Afghanistan from the, from the, the news stuff kind of feels, sounds maybe more rural or less, like Pakistan looks overcrowded. I mean, is that the, at the sense that you, that you got of it or a more vibrant kind of a, a place than Afghanistan? Um, well, so I, we were in Islamabad. So Islamabad was actually, it's kind of like Brasilia in Brazil. Like it was built in the 1960s. I mean, it was nothing for just to be a new capital city. So Islamabad, I actually thought was pretty manageable, very green. Um, I, I, you know, my understanding is that if you go to, you know, Karachi or Lahore, then that's much more hectic. But no, I, you know, I've been to India. I found Pakistan much less overwhelming. I I thought it was like almost like India, but more unique. Um, I thought it was much cleaner than India. Um, multi, very multi ethnic. 
Um, and I'd actually love to go back. Um, there's actually a, a Jewish South African travel influencer named Chad Nathan, and he was actually recently in Pakistan. I saw his his Instagram photos, and it's just such a beautiful country. So I'm I was a little disappointed we only got to spend a few days there, but I definitely want to go back. I I love hiking, and I'd love to go back and hike in the north of Pakistan. Okay, so that's very interesting, and just to get a, a sense because you are right, it, it obviously was part of India originally before it was divided. Um, after the British left, so it might have those influences. That is, that is, I suppose Afghanistan was actually part of that as well. It was all part of of India. So that is not something I thought about. Uh, what about the money, the monetary side? I mean, obviously you're working in dollars now. This is a easier than I mean, is it is it a cheap thing to do to to do these sorts of tours, or is it expensive also because of the uh, the difficulty in getting there and, and all of that aspect? So they're not. Yeah, I mean, to do these tours. They're not cheap because these are countries that don't have much tourist infrastructure. So maybe there's only one or two tour companies operating in the entire country. They have a monopoly, so there's not a lot of competition. Um, I would say in general, in U.S. dollars, the tours, which is just the land portion, they can cost anywhere from about, you know, like a thousand two hundred dollars all the way up to two thousand, two thousand five hundred dollars. It's not cheap. Um, but for me, it's priceless. This is part of my education. I mean, I grew up learning about places like Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan, and we only see one side of the country in the media. But you never actually meet people that still live in these places. You never meet people who have to live under these regimes and somehow still find joy in their lives. Um, and that's something that I try to do is I go to these countries to humanize them, to see that they're more than their regimes. In fact, they are the biggest victims of their regimes, and they hate their governments. Um, but also to humanize us Westerners, uh, to humanize Jewish people. When I was in Afghanistan, I was very open about being Jewish. Um, because they're so strictly Islamic, they view, you know, Muslims, Jews, and Christians are people of the book. Um, many people told me, you're the first Jew I've ever met. I mean, and listen, in many cases, they said, you're the first foreigner we've ever met. But I felt very comfortable telling people that I was Jewish. Um, I've in all of these countries that I go to, I never really have to hide my Judaism. Um, you know, it's not I'm not you know, I'm not I don't wear a Magen David. I don't wear anything that's obviously Jewish. But when I start to build a connection with someone, I tell them who I am. And I find most people are good around the world. They just have very bad governments who, in most cases, they didn't elect. Now, talking of the, the Jewish element, I mean, you, you worked uh, after the States, you worked in the Jewish community in Canada, excuse me, in Cape Town for a while. Uh, and then and then you moved to Canada, uh, where you also work in the community. Tell us about uh, what you do there now and what was that like, uh, sort of in a different kind of a community, but also doing community work? Yeah, I mean, I was very unfamiliar with Canada before moving here. I maybe visited a few times. I thought that Canada was basically just like the U.S. I learned that it's not. It, despite the fact that they speak similarly, the cultures actually are quite different. Um, so I head up the Jewish Federation in Windsor, Ontario. So the Jewish Federation, I guess, it would be kind of the equivalent of the Board of Deputies. Um, the Windsor is a border city. So my home to the U.S. border is a three-minute drive. Uh, within less than 10 minutes, I can be in downtown Detroit. So our airport is the Detroit airport. You turn on the radio here, it's all U.S. radio stations. So it's a very interesting place to live. Our community here is 
quite small. It's about 1,200. But because we're really part of greater Detroit, Detroit has about 70,000 Jews. Um, and Canadian Jews are, I mean, they're different. They're different. It's not as cohesive as South Africa. I, re- I truly believe there are very few communities like the South African Jewish community. It's so unique. South African Jews are very philanthropic and they feel a real obligation towards supporting their community. You find uh, in North America, and I find this in Canada, that young people are just really not interested in in affiliating with the Jewish community at all. You go to most functions, most organizations, it's just old people. Um, And I find that in South Africa, younger people still are involved in the Jewish community. And I think it's a very special place because of that. Very interesting. Now, Dan, if people want to see uh, pictures of what you did or, or find out more information about these kind of tours that you do. How can they, how can they get more information and, uh, and get a sense about, uh, what you did from perhaps a visual perspective or, or just, uh, more in depth? Sure. I mean, anyone who wants to get in touch, uh, can get in touch with me via Instagram. My Instagram name is Dan, D-A-N, and then my surname Brotman, B-R-O-T-M-A-N. Um, I post reels, I post photos. Um, I'm I'm trying to share the stories from the people that I met on these trips. Actually, right after this interview, I'm going to meet uh, with an Afghan refugee. He was a Wall Street Journal journalist who was evacuated from Afghanistan in, 2000, in 2021 um, and was resettled as a refugee with his family in Canada. Um, he, you know, I, I had met him once prior to my trip and his family in Kabul took my entire tour group out for both lunch and dinner. Amazing. Yeah, so I'm going to meet him after this. Um, um, just one other thing that's interesting about Afghanistan is you have to wear local clothing there. Um, so prior to the Taliban, people could wear whatever they wanted. Women didn't even have to cover their hair. Now they basically forbade uh, Western-style clothing. So everyone has to wear traditional clothing. So when we were in Pakistan, we actually had to go buy Afghan clothing uh, and then we wore that for the entire week. So I was dressed like a Pashtun for the week. Um, so, I mean, anyone that looks at my Instagram photos will see that. Um, part of that is showing respect for the local culture. But now under the Taliban, it's also just the law. Um, so, you know, it was a way of kind of also trying to blend in a little bit more so we would be less of a target. Um, but, yeah, that was a pretty unique part of the trip, too. I've never gone to a country where we had to dress like the locals. So if you see the... The pictures of Dan Brockman on his Instagram looking a little bit out of place. You now know why. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on Kaifen. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, I don't know, the next time you decide to go to uh, Sudan or uh, Myanmar, please let us know. We're very happy to talk to you uh, about that as well. Thanks for having me, Benji. Dan Brockman there uh, from Canada, but recently having visited Pakistan and Afghanistan. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is 101.9. Bye, FM.